Project on Middle East Political Science. Welcome back to the POMEPS Middle East Political Science Podcast, our series of conversations with top scholars in the field. Uh, with us today is Quinn Meekham. He's uh, Department of Political Science and the Director of the Middle East Studies Program at Brigham Young University. And he's the author of a recent book, Institutional Origins of Islamist Political Mobilization, uh, published by Cambridge University Press. Uh, Quinn, uh, welcome to the program. It's great to be with you, Mark. So let's talk a little bit about this book. Uh, tell us the kind of the major contribution that you see this book is making to the understanding of, of Islamism and Islamist politics. Well, this book uh, is a long project that asks a really big question. Uh, that question is, why does Islam become politicized in some contexts and not in others. Why does it become politicized in some countries more than others? Uh, and within those countries uh, in different time periods. And so it's really trying to ask uh, one of the underlying questions that people have been arguing about for a long time, which is under what conditions does Islam get involved in politics? And what, what, what I find so interesting about this book is that in, the, in, in Middle Eastern studies, at least, uh, there's a tendency to start with Egypt and to kind of read Egypt onto every place else. And uh, in your book, you actually construct a data set of all Muslim majority countries. Um, so what does that allow you to do or allow you to see about Islamist political mobilization? What are some of the trends that you see emerging that this more narrow, Egypt-centric way of thinking about Islamism doesn't let us see? Yeah, um, I actually look at 53 different countries, uh, uh, countries that have 25% of their population uh, as Muslims or, or greater. Oh, so, okay, okay. So there are some Muslim minority countries in there as well, although substantial uh, Muslim populations in those countries. Um, and they're all around the world, right? Uh, there are some in Europe, there are uh, many in Africa and in South Asia, Southeast Asia, Central Asia. Uh, the Arab world plays a, a central role uh, in terms of the activity uh, through which Islam becomes politicized. I mean, uh, most, most Arab countries do have some form of political Islam that's influenced them. Uh, but when you branch out, you get to see a variety of, of other trends. So number one is you get to see variations in Islamic institutions. Uh, we have countries like Senegal or Sudan that uh, have dominant uh, Sufi brotherhoods as their major form of Islamic organization. We have the Shia world, right, which has uh, often a very hierarchical uh, form of, of uh, religious scholar-disciple relationship. Uh, we have uh, a, a range of different densities of those Islamic institutions. So we have some places that were communist at one point, right, where religion uh, was not a part of the social fabric for a long period of time. We have other places that define themselves uh, as being Islamic countries uh, in name, if not in institutions. And so we actually have a much broader uh, sense of how Islam operates over over time. So there's a lot of variety there. Um, are, are there some places, some regions, or clusters of countries where things look really different from uh, kind of our expectations in the Arab world of kind of the expectation of Islamist political mobilization? Um, sure. So uh, often uh, in the Arab world, we think about jihadi networks. We think about uh, uh, sometimes Islamist movements, particularly like the Muslim Brotherhood, that have a social mm -hmm. component to them, but also are involved in street protests. Uh, 
in, in many places in the Islamic world, we actually uh, it's more common to see militias. So the Taliban, for example, mm-hmm. in Afghanistan, Al Shabaab uh, in Somalia, we end up um, having more of a, of a militia-style organization, territorial-based uh, or- mm-hmm. organizations as well. So there are um, many different forms that are out there besides the kinds of things that we tend to see in the Middle East. And then you look at some African countries where you say, look, by all by all rights, you should see large-scale mobilization here, and yet you don't. Well, um, three of the chapters of the book look specifically at Senegal, um, at Turkey, and at Algeria. Senegal was really interesting to me uh, because of all countries in West Africa, uh, it tends to have the densest Islamic social networks. Uh, people identify um, as Muslims. Uh, they spend a lot of their social activities uh, in Muslim organizations, whether they be urban uh, circles and social circles or whether they be more rural uh, hierarchical uh, Sufi brotherhoods. Uh, so I was really interested, why are we not seeing uh, political parties campaigning on Islamic issues in a in Senegal, which has 90% of the population as Muslim, uh, why are we not seeing Islamist violence in a place like Senegal? Um, and the argument of the book, um, you know, tries to answer this broader politicization question by uh, understanding the complex interactions between several factors that many people have thought might influence politicization, mm-hmm. in, in, including uh, religiosity and Islamic networks including the kinds of hierarchical structures that Islamic organizations often uh, incorporate, uh, and in terms of the role of the state, the state's relationship uh, to Muslim groups. And so Senegal, um, as representative of a broader case of West Africa, is a place that has quite dense Islamic networks, but uh, has a lot of, of really hierarchical groups that do a really good job of, of policing their younger members who may want to go out and actually start a political party, um, in part because those those Sufi brotherhoods are in competition with one another. That's a very dangerous thing for these leaders to allow to happen, and so they try to shut those those efforts down in ways that are much harder to do in places in North Africa or, or in Egypt, for example. Well, let's walk through the argument, kind of the, the general argument, uh, kind of plank by plank. Uh, so the first one you mentioned was kind of religiosity or kind of general kind of religious uh, institutions in the country. So how does that matter? Well, one answer that's been floating out there for some time about why Islam becomes politicized more in some places than others is that some places have more believers than others, right? Some places are more religious than others. Uh, I, I don't find there to be a lot of evidence for that. Mm-hmm. Um, in other words, there's a fair amount of evidence that your uh, willingness and interest in praying five times a day or fasting during, during Ramadan, those kinds of things, is not highly correlated with your interest in political Islam. And you do a lot of statistical analysis in the book that kind of shows that. Yeah, and we have good good survey data in places like Turkey that shows that that's not particularly correlated with voting for Islamist parties, for example. Right. Uh, but there is something about uh, religious institutions that I argue matters. So uh, the denser network you have of religious institutions, these are, are local mosques, these are school systems, uh, places where people get together and talk about Islamic issues, the more likely it is that people share uh, what I call common knowledge about social expectations. So uh, they have a symbolic language, 
they have common knowledge, uh, essentially meaning that I know that you know this and you know that I know it, mm -hmm. uh, which allows us to shortcut a lot of explanations and, and makes symbols particularly potent um, in communication. It, it enables collective action. And, and, and when you and I are part of a broader Muslim community where we believe that, that uh, we believe the same things, then uh, we're able to mobilize people around a particular set of expectations. And so that's a bit of a different mechanism than just being religious mm -hmm. or being pious. Can you give an example of, of, of that in action, like, like how this common knowledge mechanism might work in practice? Sure. Uh, many uh, Islamic movements use uh, symbolism, particularly maybe some phrases from the Quran, particular phrases from or stories from Islamic history uh, to illustrate particular points. And the more people have access to the underlying meanings behind uh, those symbolic narratives, uh, the more they're able to uh, make the leap when an imam or um, a young jihadi or a politician decides to apply that narrative to uh, a particular given situation in Quran. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, uh, it, you know, as a very, very generic example, um, if I was to go out in some context yelling, Allahu Akbar, God is great, right? That could be perceived as a, a particularly normal uh, manifestation of piety in some religious circumstances. But in other places, that might be a political act. Uh, I could wear a headscarf, right, on... Mm -hmm. uh, Republic Day in Turkey, which the former president uh, of Turkey's wife did and caused a big uproar. Um, and that particular act around what the hijab means in that society uh, automatically politicizes that symbol in ways that it might not in other places. And so the, the more common knowledge and expectation that people have around what particular mm -hmm. symbols and narratives mean, uh, the more likely it is to have political meaning and to lead to collective action in controversial circumstances. Okay, then the next step of the argument. Yeah. So that's not enough, right? Uh, in other words, you can have dense dense Islamic networks. I just mentioned Senegal. Mm -hmm. Senegal has very good dense Islamic networks. But uh, you need to have uh, what I call a uh, climate that is fit for religious entrepreneurship. And some places in the Muslim world have that, and some do not. So places where... Uh, Islamic uh, religious authorities are very hierarchical, uh, where there is relatively little contention around uh, Islamic claims, because perhaps in a Shia society there is one marja who has ultimate authority to rule against, uh, on those claims, or in a very hierarchical environment like a Sufi Brotherhood, uh, where everyone knows you know, who's in charge here, it becomes quite difficult in those circumstances to take advantage of that collective action potential of Islamic common knowledge mm -hmm. um, if people don't want you to who are above you. But there are many countries around the, uh, the Muslim world where there is no such credible authority, um, where organizations are, are quite fragmented, um, where it's possible uh, for almost anyone to make any claim that they can. And the more that they can tap into that pool of common knowledge uh, without being policed by others that are respected or legitimate um, to the average Muslim, uh, the more chances they'll have of being able mm -hmm. to really politicize it. 
So now you've got the societal level, you've got this institutional level, and then finally you link this up to the state. Uh, absolutely. So again, you, you can believe the same things, you can uh, try to mo mobilize people out there to talk about those things, but if people can't focus on particular political issues or particular political openings, you're not going to get that far. Um, so two things that happen at the state level that I, I found looking at this whole set of 50 plus countries that tend to be really important in, in predicting whether or not a country will uh, turn into a, a very politicized case. Uh, one is uh, clear, clearly demarcated state crises. So this could be very public corruption crises. This could be a crisis of uh, a political order. Um, and these things create openings in which people are start to look around and look for other answers. And when they do that at the same time, um, countries in which you have this religious entrepreneurship and common knowledge then can uh, benefit from this kind of Islamic narrative in those moments. The second time, and, and this is very interesting, particularly thinking about what's happened with uh, the Arab uprisings over the last number of years, is that when you rapidly democratize, that also creates a focal point or a political mm -hmm. opening around which people are looking for the same kind of, uh, of political narratives. And uh, in some places, Islamists are going to be really well poised to take advantage of those openings, whereas in others, for the reasons that I've talked about, they might not. So in terms of like what this means in terms of mobilization, I mean, I can see at least at least three different manifestations of this. So one is this idea of just like protesting, like mobilization for its own sake, like uh, that sort of thing. Uh, kind of, and then the second is elections and uh, doing well in elections. And, uh, and then the third is turns to violence. And um, so how do those three levels kind of relate to each other in terms of the argument of the book? You know, why do you see kind of mobilization sometimes without violence or elections? Why do sometimes you see turns to violence where you hadn't seen it before? I mean, how does all of this matter in kind of political outcomes? So you're really focusing now on the ways in which Islam gets politicized. Exactly. Right? And those are the three main ways um, that we do see it, right? In, in terms of voting, protest, or rallies. Uh, the answer to the form this takes has a lot to do with the history of political opportunity in the state mm -hmm. and the way that those political opportunities evolve. So local context. Uh, local context matters, but there are some trends that, that we, we can talk about, right? So, um, for example, um, until you know very recently, many countries in the Arab world were sufficiently authoritarian that elections were irrelevant. That, th mm -hmm. that kind of mobilization was closed. Uh, we saw a resurgence in a number of countries uh, during those first free and fair elections, in which we saw Islamist parties win elections in Morocco and in Tunisia and in Egypt. But for much of the history of, of those countries, those pathways were blocked. So if that, that option is blocked, then protest becomes an option. Right? Uh, Algeria is a particularly interesting case where we see a transformation mm -hmm. uh, of the mode of Islamist mobilization across all three of these. So in the late 1980s, early 1990s, there was a political experiment that allowed for free and fair elections in which the Islamic Salvation Front did extremely well in the early rounds of those elections. Uh, those elections were shut down by the military. Uh, 
so you ended up having mass protests by Islamist groups after that, recognizing that that previous mm -hmm. venue was closed. These, these turned into mass protests. Those protests were actively repressed. Um, the party and the movement were banned. And the movement splintered into a number of groups that then uh, were divided about how to use or when to use violence. Some of them engaged in violence for many, many years. And so um, much like uh, Muhammad Hafiz's argument in Why Muslims Rebel, the uh, relationship of the state to the movement uh, has a really important influence in terms of shaping the pathways mm -hmm. that um, Muslim groups can take, Islamist groups can take. What I do find quite interesting, though, and is confirmed through many countries in this research, is that uh, you're not necessarily just a violent Islamist or just an electoral Islamist mm -hmm. or just a street mobilizer. In other words, that um, while some people might have more tendencies to use political violence than some people may um, only be interested in voting in elections, that there is a bit of uh, transference uh, depending on the opportunities that are present. So in other words, I would anticipate that when political openings take place, that many people who might use other forms of political mobilization will be interested in now channeling many of their efforts into political campaigning. And when elections are not available, those that may be interested in voting uh, will be looking for other alternatives as well. Now, one of the th questions which your book raised for me is that you do a great job of breaking this down kind of country by country, kind of the country as case. What about kind of transnational Islam and kind of the, like you know, the world historical time when you have the rise of jihadist ideas across the Middle East, um, where it's kind of it's going wage, it's kind of roaring across all of these cases simultaneously, but then refracting differently through the institutional context you're describing. How do you work that factor into the book when you have kind of exogenous or transnational uh, uh, drivers? Yeah, there are transnational drivers. Uh, the, the book really starts looking at uh, Islamist politicization beginning in the 1970s. The, the 1970s was a decade where it started out very sleepy uh, in terms of Islamist movements uh, making political claims uh, uh, against their states in the Arab world and beyond. But by the end of the 70s, this had really quite sped, sped up. Mm -hmm. And then by the time we get into the mid-1990s, uh, there is uh, a fever pitch in some places in terms of uh, Islam becoming a core political cleavage uh, in many countries uh, around the Middle East and, and beyond. Uh, as different Islamist movements observe Islamist movements in other countries, they're influenced by those movements. Uh, and we do see uh, clear trends over time that there's a spread uh, across uh, countries over time. One of the, the, the broader trends uh, in the book is that the big Islamist uh, protest movements, like the Iranian Revolution, right? Mm -hmm. The uh, post-election Algerian uh, protests and then and then fighting. These kinds of things have diminished uh, over time mm -hmm. uh, until we get to some of the, the core civil wars in the last few years. But the range of countries that are experiencing uh, Islamists, either voting or using violence or other things, has greatly expanded. So if you go back in time 20, 30 years, this was confined to a relatively small number of countries. Uh, today, almost every country in the, in the Muslim world 
is experiencing some form of this. And so what we've seen is a broadening of the impact uh, of Islamism across the Muslim world, even sometimes as we see the impact in individual countries narrowing. So I, I suspect in answer to your question, although this is not addressed specifically in the book, uh, that these transnational networks and, in, and the transnational flow of ideas and observation effects across countries have been very influential in that spread. And some of the big failures uh, of Islamist mobilization, including in places like Algeria, um, have impacted uh, groups in other countries to the point that they have not tried similar experiments. Now, one last question. This is beyond uh, the book, but I know it relates to work you're doing now. How does the, the ISIS experience, the Islamic State experience, um, affect uh, all of these trends that you've been describing? Is this something which is just sui generis, completely unique, or do you see things in that experience which resonate with the arguments you made in your book? One thing that I do see that does resonate is that it, it's hard for me to imagine uh, the development of the Islamic State, the growth and rapid expansion of, uh, of that group over the past number of years, um, without uh, the kinds of mechanisms that I've just described. So one would be common knowledge in Sunni circles mm -hmm. in Iraq and Syria um, about what's acceptable in those circles, particularly when juxtaposed against uh, Shia-led governments in those countries where they, they feel persecuted. So a, a sense of common knowledge about their joint uh, persecution by those mm -hmm. governments mm -hmm. um, and cross-border identification, I think, allowed a, a group like that to build social networks and common knowledge quite quickly. Um, secondly, the, 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 those groups, um, the, the, the Muslims in those areas had very little authoritative hierarchy to prevent any attempts um, to politicize their issues. Yeah, religious institutions were just shattered. The religious institutions were shattered. There was was, was very little social cohesion uh, at that religious level. Uh, but most importantly was the deep state crises that um, these Islamists were facing at the time. Uh, it was extremely hard to, to see how they could reintegrate in a positive way into the, into the Syrian state. Um, what the long-term future for Sunnis in northern Iraq looked like under uh, a supposedly democratic uh, Shia-led government supported by the international community. Um, and so that real crisis of confidence in the state allowed them to really imagine kind of audacious things about the future and to mobilize a lot of people very quickly. All right. We've been speaking with Quinn Meekham. He's a uh, uh political science department at Brigham Young University, author of the new book, Institutional Origins of Islamist Political Mobilization. Uh, Quinn, thanks for joining us. Thank you.